Heroes are normal people who commit to defending their way of life. That's something our guest said today, and it really resonated with me. I'm Aaron, and this is the Bear Market Brief Podcast. To close out 2022, I wanted to focus on Ukraine, but in a different way than in our prior coverage. I wanted to zoom in past the geopolitics, past the military strategy, and focus on what the war has been like for regular people. This episode, I was joined by Kirill, we'll leave it at his first name, a resident of Kiev, an open source conflict researcher, and Russian political refugee. You're going to hear about displacement, both internal and international, life during blackouts, community solidarity, government services, queer acceptance, language politics, and attitudes towards Zelensky. But this is not meant to be the definitive final story. This is a fragment in the mosaic of lived experiences that make up the war. Before we dive in, though, a quick note that proceeds from this episode will be donated to Vostok SOS, a civilian-focused Ukrainian aid organization selected by our guest. Vostok SOS does great work assisting those displaced by the war. I'll include a donation link in the episode description. People still need help, and if you're looking to make a holiday donation, this would be a great place. Kirill, thank you so much for joining today. Thank you for having me. So let's start at the beginning of the war with your experience here. Where were you when the war broke out? So it was uh, kind of a weird thing because most of the stuff I've been doing was monitoring this uh, stuff and uh, it was uh, coming up closer and closer and the uh, worse and worse scenarios were going to be more likely. And at the same time, I was uh, trying to get my refugee papers. I've uh, been actually in an arduous eight-year process to get a refugee status in Ukraine and Long story short, I did it. Uh, they called me like back in January and said that uh, we will have your papers ready by some mid-February stuff. And I came there and I begged and I pleaded and I said, I need those papers now because you know what's going to happen. And they were of course like, nothing's going to happen. It's all uh, just uh, scare talk. Uh, so that's how I ended up. Uh, le- leaving cave uh, with basically the first tracks because I was uh, like um, waiting there to uh, give a chance to grab my papers uh, because it would be well to have at least uh, some documents on you in the middle of a war, you know, uh, when there's going to be all the checkpoints and stuff. So uh, I ended up uh, getting them only when I got back to Kiev, uh, but uh, that's uh, how it happened that at the first hours of the war, like even before that, uh, I uh, saw, I think, what uh, got me to realize that it's going to be a full-on uh, invasion when they Russia closed airspace uh, along the entire border, including like the northern regions. Uh, that was meaning they were going all in. It was not like some uh, kind of large Donbass operation. It was going to be like the full-scale invasion, the whole package. Which is why first thing I did, I went to a journalist uh, friend on the other bank of uh, Cape because... Uh, I would need to evacuate somewhere out west. I have a friend, uh, another friend in Vinnytsia, which is like uh, out there in like uh, western part of central Ukraine, I could describe it like that. And uh, I was really afraid that first thing they were going to do is like uh, hit and destroy the bridges. Only now I realize how hard this actually is, but... I thought that I wouldn't want to be trying to find ways to cross the Dnipro in the middle of a war. Uh, so I just went to the right bank. Uh, we went to some kind of bar and I was out there. I was uh, like, uh, they uh, guys already left at that point. I was listening to the Putin speech, where basically the declaration of war speech. And I was like, uh, I don't know, it was something like I was trying to... I think I wanted to uh, like reenact one or two moments. I just uh, my uh, raising my head from my phone and like in the most dramatic uh, way, I'm saying "War, why not?" And everyone's like, "Whatever." 
Uh, I mean, people, it was hard for people to realize, to internalize what's going on, because uh, when I was, like, uh, going out there to have my, like, car share, there is this blah, blah car thing, it's a car share thing that uh, goes, uh, uh, like, around cities, uh, between between cities. So when I went out there, uh, the taxi driver was very nice that he actually didn't uh, uh, finished my ride first and then uh, went to his kids. So the thing was cancelled and uh, I am just standing there fighting, finding some kind of, uh, trying to hitch a ride, trying to uh, get on this uh, Marshrutka bus. Uh, probably anyone who's ever been to the former Soviet Union knows the experience of Marshrutkas. Now imagine getting a marshrutka to get you out of what's uh, gonna soon be a war zone, which actually is a war zone because I am uh, looking up on my Twitter chats and they say like, uh, we are hearing loud explosions in Central Cave. And I was there, I just caught the marshrutka. I was uh, uh, reading the news and trying to get out of cave. Uh, I think it took me about an hour to get out of the city itself. And that was uh, kind of, the start of the great uh, cave traffic jam. And uh, then I think I hitched a ride to Zhitomir and uh, out there I uh, got, got a proper city, like intercity bus uh, to uh, Vinnitsa and uh, there I, while I was waiting, I everyone was just so eerily normal still at that point. Uh, I even like uh, gave a comment to some Ukrainian media for some reason I was compelled to do that in Ukrainian like for the first time ever. And uh, so I got a hitch the ride, uh, went to my friends and uh, there I spent uh, like the first few months of the war. I didn't even hear any kind of explosions or anything, uh, even though we Vinitsa was attacked uh, several times while I was there. That was before that uh, big attack that claimed a lot of people's lives. Uh, so a lot to process here. Thank you so much for sharing so far. Um, a couple of points to clarify, step back for the audience. So just we'll, we'll get to your kind of refugee, how you arrived in Ukraine to begin with. We'll, I'll ask about that in a little bit. Um, also for listeners, uh, just because we mentioned here the right bank of the Dnieper, if you're looking at a map of Ukraine, and you haven't you know, been familiar with the, the terminology, the right bank is what's going to look like the left side of Ukraine to you. So it's, it's moving west. So just that clarification for listeners. So, Well, Timothy Snyder, you have to think like a river. If you are flowing south, then the left bank is uh, to the left of you. So it would be the eastern bank for the most part and vice versa. Exactly. So you mentioned in the run-up to the war, you saw the kind of prognosis, the situation getting worse and worse. Did you think it was actually going to be a full-scale war until the airspace closure? Um, what do you think was the most likely scenario? Yeah, I literally, up, up until that point, I still thought that those forces, they were out there to, uh, like, you know, uh, project the effect of that uh, they are going to be there. So that Ukraine would have to keep uh, lots of uh, uh, their own troops uh, defending uh, the entire border. And uh, that would uh, kind of make easier the Russian job of uh, cutting off the Ukrainian forces in the Donbass itself. Uh, the largest uh, group of the Ukrainian forces and uh, uh, get, uh, basically after that uh, present to the FEA complete and uh, get Ukraine to recognize those areas and well I don't know what that would actually entail uh, I don't but uh, that uh, I don't know either it was my own bias because I didn't want uh, this to start happening where I live, but uh, that still was the likeliest scenario. And that was actually, I think, the most uh, plausible scenario for a Russian uh, victory. They could have potentially done this, uh, not uh, that they were actually going for, but that was uh, kind of the most realistic one because they also wouldn't have to occupy quite a lot of territory with a potentially hostile population. 
and the that that's like uh, that that's what I thought was going to happen but uh, apparently uh Putin didn't uh, listen to smart analysts who, uh, from the West who said that that would be um, not the best course of action. And uh, what do you know, it turned out to be not the best course of action. Turns out. So uh, you said when we were preparing for this that in April you came back to Kiev. So was the situation there that Russia withdrew from the north and you felt safe going back? Yeah. Uh, basically, I would have come like even early in early April. My uh, basically, I think uh, the uh, I like to you know quantify the stuff to do it in some specific terms. When is it actually safe? The safe part was when the Ukrainians would have cleared the Zhitomir Highway, which was going west. Because uh, if Russia could push uh, south of Zhitomir Highway, that then the um, possibility of actually encircling Kyiv it was uh, still out there, which is why I wanted to make sure that it happened. But I only could go when I could actually contact the immigration service to make sure that my papers were going to be in order. And basically, I had to go in with just photographs of the papers, which uh, led to kind of an interesting conversation with, uh, I believe, uh, Security Service of Ukraine operative uh, and that was pretty amicable, I could say, especially compared to what uh, Ukrainians have to go through with, uh, in the occupied territories. And uh, I was let off and uh, haven't uh, had any problems with the law ever since. Understood. Um, you also mentioned as part of this that you took in, was it a whole family from Kherson? Uh, how did that even get arranged? And what was, what was that experience like? Uh, there was this uh, guy who is uh, trans who went uh, away like to live in cave and uh, one thing to another he ended up in my apartment we had this uh, kind of arrangement of a shared apartment but uh, uh, it kind of fell apart so I ended up uh, the only guy paying uh, this pretty small amount you would say uh, it's like under $500 for a uh, four-room apartment, which is uh, very low in uh, on standards right now, but I've been like very good about it, and my landlady is very nice and understanding, which is uh, kind of weird, I know, but uh, that's the way things are. Uh, so he just uh, lived at my place for some time uh, because I just had a spare room, and then uh, he and his family they went to they left for I believe somewhere way out west but the accommodation like wasn't great uh, they had to share like five people in a two bedroom in a two room apartment and uh, then he asked if his family gonna could come live with me i said uh, fine uh, so that's what happened and we've been uh, sheltering uh, here like for qu- quite some time so now they uh, actually went uh, back to pick up uh, their dad who stayed in Kherson and who lived there through the occupation. And now they are going to find some arrangement to um, go to Europe, uh, maybe because uh, the, the dad, he's disabled, uh, he's had a stroke and... Uh, that's uh, actually I am living like a quite uh, way up uh, there. Um, it's a very it's a high rise uh, apartment building, and uh, with elevators not working, it's uh, like uh, not the best place for a disabled person. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, so actually, a question about this that I, I wanted to follow up on not the specific not the specifics of of taking someone in, but more broadly how people are relating to each other during the war, people in the same community, neighbors. Uh, have you seen a change in, in how that's worked in Ukraine? Has social cohesion increased in any, in any way? Yes, uh, people actually do start uh, helping each other. Uh, like uh, coming back to my landlady, she was like absolutely fine when I didn't pay my rent for the time when no one actually lived at the apartment. 
uh, and uh, there is also a lot of uh, like uh, other stuff uh, people just uh, generally more you know mm, uh, you know attentive uh, with the businesses like for example you wouldn't uh, actually imagine a situation when you come to some kind of uh, gas station and just uh, start working on your laptop uh, that's uh, not something that's uh, uh, actually possible back then i think it would still would still be some issue you would get some weird looks at the very least but now it's okay and uh, like when we had that first larger blackout it was very in late november when it was the most massive attack uh, so far I just uh, went to that gas station, uh, got some coffee, and uh, just uh, literally sat there in the corner uh, near the charger working, uh, no one bat an eye. That's uh, one thing. And of course, there is also the thing that a lot of people are donating to any charity they can find. They are military charities, civilian charities, you name it. Everyone is uh, fine to take in anyone who is uh, coming from out there in the war zone and the occupied territories. Yes, uh, that's uh, something that's uh, been uh, happening a lot. Uh, and uh, yeah, yeah, you could you could say that. Uh, although I haven't uh, had any like. Uh, first-hand experience with the actual like a war zone situation I mean the closest it was of the larger blackout uh, so we but uh, as I see it like uh, people out there um, a lot of them are volunteering uh, my uh, therapist was uh, volunteering for quite a lot of time she went to live in Portugal and uh, She's a volunteering from there, especially working with other volunteers, working with the burnout cases. Uh, this is uh, something that she did uh, pro bono. And uh, that's like one example of uh, people like uh, try, trying to pull their weight. A question about the blackouts, which you mentioned. First, uh, just for context for the listeners, what's the weather like in Kiev right now? How cold is it? Uh, it's, I guess, just a bit uh, below freezing. I'm sorry, I don't know how much is that in American degrees. Uh, so just a bit below freezing. It was uh, quite uh, coldish a couple of days back. And uh, it is uh, kind of an issue because, uh, you know, uh, the problem is not that it is actually cold for now but uh, that when the power goes out so does the heating so there are sometimes some moments when you have uh, heating but no power or power but no heating but uh, generally when everything goes out it goes out uh, together and uh, that can kind of be an issue because uh, my apartment got pretty cold uh, last time and uh, yeah, there are like uh, ways to cope with that I have pretty warm clothes I have uh, thermal underwear I have uh, two or three blankets and uh, that's actually very fine and comfortable and I have uh, like a thermal bottle with tea which I uh, just hate up I am just lucky that way because uh, my apartment building is not that new so uh, my uh, it has uh, gas as in uh, cooking gas and uh, uh, so the stove is not electrical uh, so i can actually boil my own tea in a blackout and uh, i can uh, cook uh, my own dishes in a in a blackout and not everyone uh, has that opportunity so people have been uh, buying gas uh, powered uh, thingies uh, which are used to cook food so that that is uh, kind of an issue but people are coping for now i don't know how it will actually work when we are like in uh uh, minus uh, 20 uh, in American, that would be freaking uh, cold territory. <laughs> yeah, the technical, the technical term. 
One question that I I want to ask that I hope isn't too too glib or you know not taking this seriously enough, but what do you do? What do people in your community do during blackouts, which can last hours? How do you spend that time? Well, uh, don't, a lot. Uh, sadly, to my work, especially a lot of people doom scroll. Apparently, uh, like uh, that's uh, one thing that you can do. You can uh, sit there and uh, doom scroll because. Uh, they even started getting uh, Wi-Fi back uh, when the air raids were more frequent, uh, although less consequential for most people. Uh, so they installed uh, Wi-Fi into some uh, air raid shelter so you can uh, doom scroll in an air raid, apparently. And uh, that's uh, that thing, like uh, like uh, the Kherson refugee family that's been with me, they've been doing that a lot. And the other... You do other stuff. I go outside, uh, uh, touch snow. <laughs> uh, but no, actually, it's a good way to do some of the chores that you need to go outside for. Uh, like, uh, there is always uh, some kind of store that uh, has a generator, at least now. So you can walk like 10 minutes uh, to, to a store or something. You can uh, go out, get a coffee. Uh, you can read books, uh, actually. Uh, that's a good thing, uh, even like an ebook, because uh, you can just uh, switch off uh, the um, mobile data connection that uh, would uh, save your battery, and uh, you can go and read. I've been uh, reading Good Soldier Schwake and giggling a lot because it's uh, about like an Austro-Hungarian soldier in the First World War. And uh, if you believe uh, the uh, guy description, the Austro-Hungarian army, it was pretty much uh, in every way just as dysfunctional as the Russian army is. Uh, and uh, it's kind of, uh, you see a ton of parallels there and they're really amusing. So you mentioned Wi-Fi getting installed um, and more generators around. So kind of the, the flip side of the coin from social cohesion, state capacity, the government's ability to be responsive to people, provide services. Has that changed at all during the war? Uh, yes, actually, because everyone was uh, being mad at uh, the, the utilities, being mad at uh, the... It's um, quite a mouthful. It's the... Ukrainian railroad uh, company. Um, so being mad at uh, every aspect of state services, it was uh, kind of as Ukrainian as Borsh. But, uh, you know, the way they have been working now, like the Ukrainians, the thing like when I was going back uh, to Kiev, it was actually the time when Russia was trying to disrupt, I think, the Western supplies of weapons and they started uh, striking uh, substations that supplied power to the railroad, actually. And uh, they switched it for some, uh, you know, uh, diesel-powered uh, locomotives. They repaired that quickly. So long story short, uh, I and my train was late for two hours uh, in the middle of a missile attack. And I ended up arriving to Kiev like uh, 40 minutes late. Uh, that's like one example of how they've been uh, doing pretty great. There is, of course, some kind of, what do you say, that's uh, not a, quite a lack of communication uh, from some of the utilities uh, that, uh, well, uh, because the power is always so unpredictable and uh, this unpredictability is kind of like they're trying to predict that. You have uh, this uh, uh, chart which says when your power is out, when your power is going to be back on. But uh, most of the time it's just uh, we have an emergency blackout, which means that uh, you can uh, get a power off any, any time. Of course, everyone understands that uh, the big issue here is that uh, the power grid is in under the kind of immense strain. But, the, but still, it's something that the communication part, something that could have been a bit better. 
like uh, this uh, guy from this uh, the, the tech, which is actually a large oligarchic uh, conglomerate power and uh, coal and everything conglomerate. He said that in some Western interview that people should be kind of evacuating, uh, people should be leaving, and he had to walk back his words because uh, naturally everyone went into a panic. I think like uh, the most thing the main Ukrainian officials wish that their um, you know content wouldn't be translated back into Ukrainian that they are saying to the Western media just to see how great the problem actually is. But uh, when you when it's translated back, uh, they wish they didn't say that because it caused the panic back home. Uh, even though the home, home the message is that we have everything under control and for the most part it's true. Uh, but uh, still, it uh, kind of gets a mixed message situation. Uh, as to uh, the general cohesion of uh, state services, there was also, I think, another issue is that uh, uh, I think uh, first one who raised the story was uh, Alina Mikhailova, a member of uh, the Kyiv City Council, who is actually in the army, and uh, while she's not in the army, she's going to the uh, city council meetings, and she said that uh, there was quite a lot of issue with the invincibility points in Kiev itself, like specifically Kiev. Um, What's an invincibility point? Invincibility point is this place where you can uh, charge your stuff, where you can uh, get warm, where you can uh, have uh, internet, where you can uh, have some hot hot drink, and uh, they are generally they are supposed to be established by the government. That any business can declare yourself in a, themselves an invincibility point, which of course uh, drives up the commerce somewhat. Because I mean, at least I feel compelled to at least have a coffee when I am uh, going into some kind of place when I actually not doing this to get a coffee and really to uh, do all those things that I've mentioned. So uh, the government run of insecurity points have had quite an issue in Kiev. Uh, I've like uh, seen that firsthand because at the big blackout, I didn't know where I was even supposed to go. The, the cellular uh, connection went out. It uh, goes out uh, pretty fast uh, in a blackout because uh, A, everyone goes onto it. B, a lot of the towers are working on batteries, uh, not, not so many working generators, so I had no power, I had no idea where I should go to get some. I was uh, like uh, riding around on my bicycle, I passed uh, the uh, kind of uh, city district uh, neighborhood borough administration, and it was like dark. Uh, so I said it was. It's supposed to be an invincibility point uh, because they say like go out to places like schools, like government buildings. Then I actually went to a gas station, and uh, it had internet, it had uh, power, it had everything. It had those uh, uh, sales assistants in their nice uh, suits. Uh, it was kind of a different world. So you could say like at least in Kiev, like uh, businesses they responded better. Although it's, I think it's not a Ukraine problem, it's a Kyiv problem, because uh, even uh, Zelensky had to single out the Kyiv authorities uh, that they did not uh, do it uh, really well. All over the country, I think it's uh, generally better. Although some kind of, some guy, some mayor from Western Ukraine, I think he threatened uh, to, at a kind of uh, meeting with the state official, so that the municipal officials supposed to run those things that he threatened to make their uh, apartments or their mansions into invincibility points uh, unless they actually get things in order. So the, there are hiccups all around. Uh, it's like an unprecedented emergency, but uh, overall, as long as I can go out somewhere and uh, get all of those essential things, I don't complain. So... I want to pivot back to something you mentioned very early on about getting your papers in order. So I think your interesting take on all this uh, stems from the fact you're not originally from Ukraine. So tell us about how you wound up in Ukraine. So that was a thing uh, with uh, me in 2014, actually going back to 2012, that's uh, when I became politically active. I went to all the election fraud protests. I in Russia? 
yeah, in Russia. I actually live streamed a lot of them uh, when live streaming was still like uh, quite a new thing. And uh, then I was kind of out of it. And then in 2013, of course, I followed the Euromaidan a lot. Uh, back then I could uh, basically read Ukrainian. I could uh, understand spoken Ukrainian. And Aaron here during post-production. I apologize the interruption, but I was hoping to, doing this episode, document real life in Ukraine. And I should have been more careful what I wished for. Uh, we had a power cut and had to switch to the mobile network which was a little spotty at times. I managed to clean up most of it. But if you hear any differences in audio quality or any fragments of the conversation that it was interrupted a couple of times, that's why. Let's jump back in. I had a power cut. I just uh, went over to cellular, went over to my laptop. I hope that works. It's actually, it's actually to illustrate my earlier point, it went out two and a half hours ahead of schedule, but they did warn that they would be uh, off schedule for quite some time after the latest attack. Uh, there was this uh, joke on Ukrainian Twitter which I loved a lot. It said, like, Grandpa, why do you do all your household chores in uh, three hours? Okay, whippersnappers, gather around and listen. <laughs> I actually, I actually uh, washed uh, my clothes, I uh, took a shower, I uh, washed the dishes because the hot water is back on, and I uh, baked uh, some uh, meat and potatoes. So, and all of that uh, before the call. Very, very productive. And apologize to listeners yes. that, you know, cell signal is doing its thing here. You were in Russia, you were uh, engaging with Yeramaidan, you understood Ukrainian. So what happened next? Uh, Crimea happened, basically. And uh, what I'm seeing is like on uh, one side, there is this uh, kind of... Uh, people triumphant in their uh, democratic revolution and uh, on the other side there is some kind of uh, protest went to it was even unrelated to ukraine it was about some um prisoner uh, convicts over a political case over the sham riot case at uh, the balotny in back in 2012 i went there and uh, someone like uh, called me in an anti-ukrainian slur while well, I was just standing there with a, at a protest, uh, some passerby. That's something that uh, moved me a lot. And then there was uh, this Putin speech, uh, the national traitor speech. It's not uh, like he basically branded as that anyone who was against the annexation of Crimea. It's not the... <sighs> Too many times when your president calls it that on national TV. And uh, at that point, I thought that it was going to get worse. They were going to close the border, Soviet style, that was I thought. Uh, that, uh, not that it really happened, but uh, the repression is intensified a lot really since then. So I decided I want to just uh, go live in Ukraine and uh, it's uh, gonna be fine. Uh, I still had like uh, my Russian remote job at this point, uh, which uh, means that I could really work around the um, you know, uh, exchange rate. Uh, and uh, then uh, I know the language. Uh, I can understand actually both the languages, uh, which is uh, uh, was another bonus. Uh, and of course, you didn't need uh, back then even like your foreign passport, just your internal passport. That's the thing that we have uh, both in Russia and Ukraine. So back then it could use to use internal passport to enter Ukraine. So that's what I did. And uh, then uh, I just uh, been uh, living here and uh, well, uh, working on some stuff like uh, translations, uh, basically for some pro-Ukraine blogs. Then uh, some work with uh, Bellingcat, they joining the conflict intelligence team. Uh, which has done a great job uh, um, investigating uh, the Russian army's activities and the war crimes. And uh, that's uh, basically stuff I've uh, been doing out here. And 
apart from uh, that, I also came out as queer while here because I felt it like safer to do it uh, than in Russia. And generally, the attitude of people to queerness is, uh, you could say, like uh, better. It um, it's not like everyone is like waving your rainbow flags in a lie. It's like uh, some are either curious, uh, like uh, which one of you is uh, the um, mom, mom which is the dad, and some are indifferent, but uh, there are very few people who are like openly hostile, except some like kind of uh, smaller far right gangs. But uh, other than that, it's uh, pretty acceptive of uh, what you are and. Uh, I've been uh, living here a lot. I've uh, learned to love this country, you could say. That's actually one reason I didn't want to leave apart from. I think a papers issue could have been uh, either ignored or kind of solved at the border. But I just didn't want to leave because that's uh, kind of where I am. This is kind of, I wouldn't call it my home, but this is my place. And uh, this is uh, where I kind of sort of belong, uh, you could say that, uh, as opposed to some other random country in Europe where I would uh, probably end up if I left. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned earlier in the recording or in our first recording before, before the blackout uh, that you did a media appearance in Ukrainian. And I'm curious to hear your, your thoughts, you know, having come from Russia, being a native Russian speaker, on language politics. Uh, I've watched over the course of the war videos, you know, combat footage of people, you know, Ukrainian soldiers using both Russian and Ukrainian. It seems like maybe less of an issue than it used and to be. And a mixture although... of both, like a lot of time you hear like what they call surgic uh, from the soldiers. We were speaking like a mixture of Russian and Ukrainian, and that's also pretty common. I guess I was gonna say, is the language issue uh, less salient or important now? But was it ever really important, do you think? I think uh, the language issue was always the uh, um, thing that was primarily drummed up by politicians to get election points. Uh, of course, mostly it's uh, uh, by the guys from Eastern Ukraine, the what they call pro-Russian uh, party of regions and other Nukovic guys who just uh, base a lot of their politics on resentment against uh, Western Ukrainians, which would just code for Ukrainians, you could say. And uh, on the other hand, you have uh, people from like uh, far-right parties on the patriotic programs, ostensibly side when there was this uh, boogie woman, Irina Farion, who like famously chastised the school kids for speaking Russian and for using like Russian versions of their names. Uh, so this was uh, mostly, most of the time it was a thing uh, made by politicians uh, for politicians. Of course, there were issues, uh, there were some uh, real examples of conflict is when uh, people were refused to be served in Ukrainian. And that's uh, something that uh, happened a lot. Uh, uh, vice versa, when people refused to be served in Russian to a, a lesser extent, that's uh, something that's been um, uh, happening. And if you want to, you know, like uh, troll a legislatively a politician uh, from uh, the eastern part of the country, you can like sue him for not using Ukrainian in a address and that would like give him a small fine and you'll have uh, the guilty pleasure of cringing over him trying to speak Ukrainian in his next address. Uh, mm. because uh, that, that would be like the funniest Ukrainian you'll ever hear. <laughs> so uh, there uh, there are some hiccups, but it's not like there is this uh, kind of dividing line between Russian and Ukrainian. And uh, of course, I have to add that uh, just a lot of people and a lot of content has been switching to Ukrainian, especially since the start of the full-scale war. Like I have two friends who fully switched to Ukrainian, and uh, even though it's 
I mean, in Kyiv, it's still basically, it's of course drifting towards Ukraine, but uh, it's still the unspoken rule, uh, at least in like personal communication, that uh, everyone speaks uh, the language they are more comfortable with, and everyone is expected to understand both. Um, that's uh, basically the how how Kyiv works. Kyiv is uh, like most more of a central part of the stuff. Like you have uh kind of uh, how you have a county in an election that's uh, basically always uh, votes like uh, America at large uh i don't i think you have a couple of those counties like this uh, yeah bell bellwether bell yeah yeah absolutely bellwether. so uh, i think uh, Kyiv could be like a bellwether for ukraine uh, although there is of course different like you hear less Russian when you go Western, you hear more Russian when you go East. But uh, still, uh, Kyiv is still working on that rule, although uh, within uh, the some t- quite some time, even before like the law that mandated to use Ukrainian as the first uh, language, the def- default language of uh, communication in services. Basically, that's what it. You can still like speak Russian if uh, the customer wants you to, but um, um, so even before this law, you had big chain uh, restaurants, you had big chain stores uh, switch to Ukraine and their personnel. Uh, that's uh, been kind of a thing, kind of a revival of Ukrainian because. You could barely see a paper in Ukrainian in 2014. A lot of them were in Russian. There is uh, a lot of uh, stuff like that uh, happening. After, I think it was first time after the start of the war where I saw some websites uh, forgo Russian entirely. Uh, uh, most of them uh, still have uh, both uh, versions, like uh, the majority and the largest ones will still have both versions. Some can be asked to translate some larger articles into Russian. Um, and But uh, otherwise, it's still like uh, the same slow, uh, sometimes bumpy drift uh, towards uh, Ukrainian that uh, I've uh, seen for the past eight years, even though the protests have somewhat been sped up, sped up because some people actually don't want to talk in Russian. You see them, uh, you see the refugees like who are going uh, from the occupied territories. They are trying their best to speak Ukrainian and uh, like, based on my own experience, it uh, sounds uh, a lot like they are speaking Ukrainian for the first time. Uh, like uh, formulating longer sentences, not just some basic stuff at a market or at a store. They are doing it for the first time. And that's uh, something that, of course, uh, makes uh, Ukrainian patriotic people very kind of proud for this uh, moment of uh, revival, let's say. Last question for you today. And again, I'm so grateful for your for your take and insight here. Um, not trying to make a political point or, or score political points, but fact is, before the war broke out, Zelensky sat with an approval rating in the mid-20s, I want to say, so 25% or so. Not a very popular figure. Um, before the war started, what would you have said about Zelensky as a leader, and what would you say now? I am in this uh, very weird, very small minority who was actually pretty okay with both latest Ukrainian presidents. I mean, uh, Poroshenko had his issues, like uh, he had his uh, dear friends, uh, to quote Yushinka, dear friends of this Ukrainian meme about, uh, because Yushinka addressed people uh, as dear friends, and uh, he had quite a lot of dear friends with deep, uh, deep pockets. Uh, but uh, he still was uh, actually doing something useful, at least uh, some reforms, the reforms that he didn't want to do, they could be like uh, pushed through uh, by the civil society. And uh, the landscape was pretty much the same thing. Uh, not like business as usual, but uh, he at least uh, was trying to do something, at least initially, like uh, one big thing that he did is digitalization. 
because uh, that's uh, one thing that uh, helped immensely uh, when the war started because people could like access their smartphone and get some papers if they were forced to leave their papers back home. Uh, they could like uh, file a claim of uh, restoring damages uh, caused by the war. They could uh, report uh, the enemy movements uh, through this uh, kind of app, uh, all like all-inclusive government app, DA it's called. Uh, and uh, so, uh, but overall, uh, his presidency before that, it was kind of, um, you know, uh, bumping from crisis to crisis. Uh, like uh, he had uh, these uh, conflicts over deconfliction. At first, he had some issues with conflicts with some veterans and patriots over deconfliction at the Donbass. Then he had the Ukrainian plane shot down in Iran, then he had COVID, and uh, then he had the slow burn constitutional crisis with uh, uh, some judges not wanting to um, enforce some of his laws uh, or uh, making some of the uh, important laws like anti-corruption laws uh, invalid to the constitution, as they said. And uh, then he had, well, uh, the war. And, uh, you know, before the war, it looked like uh, actually living in servant of the people because uh, when your president is like uh, busy with the, uh, the, the show that uh, propelled Zelensky to the presidency. So when your president is like uh, dealing with the crisis du jour, it's uh, kind of uh, less fun when you're living inside it when then are watching it on TV. And, uh, but, uh, well, uh, the thing is that people say that Zelensky changed. I don't think he changed a lot per se, not in 2022. Uh, I mean, he was pretty naive about the whole war stuff during their presidential campaign in 2019. He had gaffes like, you just need to stop shooting. He had this uh, kind of... Uh, a political normy um, uh, view on the war that is just uh, the oligarchs, the Russian and Ukrainian oligarchs, dicking it out while uh, the common people are suffering. And but I think uh, I think he started he started getting intelligence briefings. What happened? <laughs> and uh, he had a better understanding of that and that the Rush that Putin does not want peace. Putin does not uh, want a settlement. Putin wants the whole of Ukraine. And uh, then he just, uh, when the war started, he responded well in this, uh, again, in a very normal way, although it's uh, heroic, but uh, that's how heroes are made. Heroes are normal people that uh, just, in my, it is in my view, who uh, just commit to defending their way of life. Uh, at least in this case, uh, like many, many Ukrainian citizens did the same what Zelensky did. We had this kind of taxi driver, whatever, uh, hairstylist, uh, I mean, a go-go dancer, whatever guy who just uh, goes and uh, takes up arms or starts volunteering. Uh, I mean, the big thing about Zelensky is what people just don't... Uh, I think internalize outside is just how normy he is. Uh, I'm repeating that word, but uh, that's something that uh, makes you, him really um, stand out of the political class. He's uh, he is that he is filthy rich, of course, compared to his uh, character who became president. But he is not like oligarch rich. He still has a bunch of millions of his uh, self-built. Uh, um, business you know then you call him a comedian he's not just that he basically built a whole media empire franchise uh, which is just uh, the ukrainian uh, slash russian version of uh, uh, humor basically lots of shows lots of amateur shows lots of contests and uh, he ran all of this stuff but still he just uh, became this normy upper middle class guy. He remained that. 
And uh, this is when he got into politics. It was obvious by all of the things that he was doing. Like he was trying to move the um, administration to some kind of uh, a newer office space, but it ended up being like too costly an endeavor. And, uh, well, uh, his reaction to this was also like a very normal guy who suddenly has his country being invaded, has his people being killed, has his uh, uh, nation being genocided. Uh, and uh, he just, this is a very normal reaction to want to, uh, I don't know, rip your enemy's throat out, <laughs> basically. And... And uh, that's uh, the thing that a lot of the Ukrainian people feel the same way. That's why uh, they like him. And uh, another thing is that um, he's uh, shown that he's really into it. I mean, if you compare to how he handled COVID, I think he wanted COVID just go away. It's like uh, some kind of a problem that uh, we... Uh, want they want to just uh, go away to just uh, stop uh, they wanted like to declare victory over covid uh, as uh, early as possible but here he's really into it he's really determined uh, to see the war to the bitter end uh, hopefully to a less bitter end and uh, this is uh, how they are um you know um this is how he connects with uh, most of the Ukrainian people, at least, uh, when you look at the polls. Thanks again to Kirill for that incredible picture, and to you, listener, for joining. A quick reminder that there's a donation link for Vostok SOS in the episode description. The Bear Market Brief podcast is part of BMB Russia and Eurasia, a news brief that covers politics, economics, and the space in between. You can follow BMB at the Twitter handle at Bear Market Brief. BNB Russia and Eurasia is a project of the Foreign Policy Research Institute, that's FPRI, a nonpartisan think tank based in Philadelphia. For more information on this initiative and many others, visit fpri.org. Best holiday wishes, and I'll catch you next year.